0: Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message.
1: When I was a kid, we, every song we sang in church was about heaven. And every Sunday night sermon was either about the rapture of the church, the com- second coming of the Lord, or about uh, the streets of gold. I'll fly away. Something. Every, every, th- every Sunday night, that's basically what it was. And people were excited to get to heaven. And then along came COVID. and We found out we weren't as excited as we thought we were. <laughs> we live in a world that's filled with fear. And what I don't want you to do is be fearful as a church. I want you to be healthy. That was a weak, anemic amen. I want you to be healthy, not just healthy in your body, but healthy spiritually. So stand in the blood. If you want to wear a mask? They're not mandated. I don't believe in mandates. I just believe in options. Amen? A.W. Tozer said this. He said... The most important thing that a scared world needs is a fearless church. Let's be a fearless church. What do you say? Amen? Fearless. Fearless. And I can tell you that the only way that we're going to become fearless is we have to become a church who knows how to pray. A praying church is a fearless church. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. I'm going to be reading quite lengthy passages of Scripture this morning, but if you'll turn to the book of Genesis chapter 12, we're going to begin there. We've asked asked the Lord for numerous things since we've been in this service. We've asked for His presence to be here. We've asked for God to touch us in our bodies, to heal the sick. We've asked the Lord to, to bless us and to be with us, but I believe that if there's any request that needs to be uttered in the church today and in God's people's mouths, it needs to be this. Lord, teach us to pray. I believe that should be, first and foremost, the greatest request that you as a Christian believer would ask. It was the question that was asked by the closest of disciples. Why is that? Well, it's because when you pray, that's what opens the channel between you and the almighty God. The glory that we sang about letting it fall, that comes as you open the doors of heaven, and that is through a consecrated, persistent life of prayer. It is prayer that pulls back the curtain of the temporary and allows us to view the eternal as Paul said, get your eyes not upon the temporary, the things of life, the current news cycle, but open your eyes to the things that are eternal. It is prayer that pulls back that curtain. It is prayer that opens the possibilities for help to come into our lives against greatest against the greatest of impossibilities. We know some of the things that some of the people in this body are facing and only through prayer are we able to see the possibilities that could come into their life. And it's through prayer that we see that the arm of God is moved. The arm of God that moves the world begins to move because of prayer. Dick Eastman once said, he's the writer of a famous book called An Hour That Changes the World. He said, history proves beyond question that prayer can change the world. A prayer warrior on their knees can alter the very destiny of people and nations. How many of you believe that? Here's what I want you to catch, because this is our catch. If we know that prayer is that important, and we all amen to the fact, then why is it, friends, that it is the most neglected part of the church and many times the most neglected part of our personal lives? I'll tell you why. It's because our altars have been removed and forgotten. I was asked by my son this morning, "What's going on in the in the foyer? What's what's up with the altars being out there?" Well, there's a point. Because if I hadn't moved them out there, some of you would never have noticed them if they were here. We moved them out there because it's the real fact that the altars have been removed from many churches and from many lives. The place, the very place that the Scripture marks over and over that symbolized the meeting place between God and man has been neglected. They have fallen down. They have fallen apart and gone without use. But I believe it's time once again for the altars of prayer in the church and personal consecration and commitment to those altars be restored. I believe today is the day. 2020 is the year. If the doors are going to be opened, we're going to have to pray them open. We have to pray them open. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. I want to read. It's going to be a lengthy passage, several lengthy passages. I want you to stay with me because it's important this morning. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, and as the Lord had, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions he had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, remember that word, Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Look at verse 8. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. I want you to underline that passage or circle verse 8 because we're going to be coming back to it. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now skip down to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, which is what the Negev was when he left in in chapter 12. He went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev he went from from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram, the father of faith, the friend of God, understood a great principle in knowing the Lord. He understood the principle and the sacredness of the altar. In the scripture, you can see that Abram built multiple altars. He built an altar at Shechem, he built an altar at Hebron, he built an altar at Beersheba, at Jerusalem. And here he's, we see him in chapter 12, building an altar in the place called Bethel. Some of my fondest memories as a child were memories of times around the altar after, at church at the end of service. Some of the most miraculous things that I have ever seen have occurred as God's people would move toward the altars... And the Lord would meet them there. The meeting place of God. I have seen people healed miraculously. I have seen people being delivered of demonic spirits. I have seen people who who you thought could never be saved fall upon an altar and, and sob their eyes out, repenting and weeping before God. Some of the greatest spiritual moves that have ever occurred in my life took place at an altar where I decided that I would get up and I would go and move toward God and I knew that that's where He would meet me, a place that I considered sacred. There have been people who have traveled before us, served God before us, who have established altars in the church? I think of my own family. I think of people in the church that I grew up, those saints of God who would come to the altar, whether you gave an altar call or not. People were longing before the sermon could even be finished to just get to the altar and meet with God, to see Him move in their life because they had pressing issues, pressing needs that they wanted to talk over with the Lord, and they found that meeting place to be at the altar. I'm so thankful for those senior saints who poured their hearts out and pled and asked God for revival in those days. And I saw God pour His Spirit out in miraculous ways. The great writer E.M. Bounds says, prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them. They out, it outlives a generation, outlives an age, outlives the world the prayers that were prayed by those godly saints in those altars 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago are still being heard by God as their voices in eternity are crying out that God would pour out His Spirit and His presence upon this generation. It was every week that I saw that. There was consistency in the house of God. A consistency that we could always count on that the altars would never be empty. Even if there was a call for salvation and no one responded, still there would be some who would come and pray for those lost loved ones that they knew, seeking God and asking God to save their souls. Consistency is what established those altars in those days. A constant repetition of people kneeling before Him throwing their requests to the Lord, seeking Him with abandon, seeking Him, not worrying about who saw them cry or who saw them shout or who saw them reach out for God in whatever way, lift their voice or in a quiet tone. They were consistent in their prayer life, consistent with that regular altar, not just in the church, but also in their homes. My grandparents, for as long as I have known them, would get up early in the morning and every time that I would stay the night at my grandparents' house, I knew that I wouldn't get to sleep in. Part of it was because we had to go to the cotton fields early. But another reason was because the day would barely get started before I would hear prayer coming from the kitchen down the hallway into those little bedrooms. As my grandfather would kneel on one knee at the table, my grandmother would kneel in the chair there at the kitchen table, and I would hear them call out to God every day that I would stay with them. I would hear my name mentioned in their prayers. They'd list all of their children. They'd list their grandchildren. They'd start lifting up everybody that I didn't even know, but they had a consistent life of prayer. It didn't matter if it was a Monday morning or a Sunday morning. They started their day in prayer right there at that kitchen table. And before you got to taste those homemade biscuits and into that nice, beautiful pan of gravy, you had to kneel in prayer and ask God to give you His. let His will be done in your life. I remember, as a kid when I'd stay with him in the summertime, my uncle, who was more like my brother, only a few years older than me, he was still at home, and all of his friends would always want to stop by my grandparents' house. I'll just tell you, their house was not that special. it was rather ordinary, to be honest. There was no media room. they didn't have a big, huge TV. Matter of fact, they didn't have a whole lot, really. But it seemed like all the teenagers and the, those guys that I thought were so cool being the younger kid in the room, they'd always want to stop in say hello to Joe and I, Marie. And I can't even tell you how many times that some of those kids would stop and they would sit down at that breakfast table as we were finishing up breakfast, and they'd begin to talk about things going on in their homes. And they'd say, what do you think, Mr. Joe? What do you think we can do? Is there anything that, that we can Can you tell me what I should do? And he'd say, son, I know what we can do. We can pray and the Lord's going to do something in your, in your life. I don't know how many times they would flock to that place. Why? Because there was a, there was an altar that had been made right there at that little kitchen table that attracted people. They said that, that's a place that I know that I can find answers. It's a house that I know it makes me feel welcome. I feel like that, that maybe God has something to say to me. And people would come. Those young people, they would come. Still to this day, whether young or old, people still go to their house and they sit down at that little breakfast table that's still there with the same chairs. And they say, they say what do you think God wants to do? Can God do this? And they'll say, well, why don't we pray about it? And right there, that altar becomes active once again because of a consistency that every day they would place upon getting to know and welcoming the presence of God in their life. Let me tell you the spirit of God will look for a place where there is cons- where he is consistently welcomed. The holy spirit looks for a place where he is consistently welcomed. Because the altars around you invite spiritual activity into your life. Altars change the atmosphere around you. They completely completely change what's going on around you. I know people who, no matter if they're completely quiet, not even saying a word, not praying anything, but the Spirit of God is active around their life. How many of you know those people? The Spirit of God is moving and and they could be sitting there in a mall and somebody would come and sit down next to them and ask them to pray for them or to lead them to the Lord. I know people like that. What causes that? I will tell you exactly what causes it. It's the consistency of an established altar in their life where the Holy Spirit frequents often. And let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit will draw people to Christ because that's what His job is. And wherever the Holy Spirit is is drawing people, the altar is also right there. There's an established, consistent altar. Abraham and the saints of old understood this principle. They understood this, that whoever controls the altar controls the outcome. Whoever controls the altar, whoever mans the altar, whoever consistently arrives and, 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 and places themselves near or next to the altar and, and makes use of the altar controls the outcome. That's a principle that has not changed and will never change. There are a lot of things that are vying for the altars of your life. In the altars of the church. There will be governments and edicts that will try to declare to us that we cannot pray certain places and certain occasions. Your busy schedule will try to schedule out time of you spend at an altar. Break up that consistency. Your family can even be a distraction when it comes to the altar. Your feelings can can try to, to take over the altar. Well, I just don't feel like praying today. Other ministries in the church can try to replace the altar and take over. But let me tell you, whoever controls the altar controls the outcome. So Abraham built His life around the many altars that he had. Everywhere he went, Abraham built an altar. Thank God for the patriarchs of the church who built altars in the church. But Abraham and his generation passed away. And then along came Isaac. Let me tell you something, Isaac knows a thing or two about an altar. His first experience wasn't building an altar. His first experience was getting laid on an altar. Genesis chapter 22, the Bible describes Abraham going up the side of the steep cliffs of Mount Moriah. God had told him, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac as a test of obedience, but Abraham didn't know it was just a test. And so I can see the trudging walk that he took with his son in hand walking up the mountain the struggle that was going on in his mind the struggle that was happening in his heart knowing that he's got the wood and everything there to build the altar and to build the fire and the only thing that was missing as isaac pointed out was where is the sacrifice the struggle was real my friends As Isaac was bound and placed upon that altar on the top of that mountain. It was then and only then that God stayed Abraham's hand as the knife was about to plunge deep into Isaac's body. God stopped him and he pointed his attention to the ram that was caught in the thicket, my friends. Listen to me. You can't see what's on the other side of your mountain until you first go up to the altar. A lot of you are walking up that mountain. You can't see what's on the other side. The first thing that you need to do is arrive at the altar because that's the only place you're going to see God's deliverance and His miracles happen in your life. It begins there. So Abraham went up to the mountain took his son Isaac. Isaac that day, he saw the power of the altar. He saw the testing He saw what God could do at an altar. Because it was an altar that changed the course of Isaac's life. It was the altar that spared him. He was as good as dead on Mount Moriah. But that altar, at the altar God stopped Abraham's hand. He changed His plans. Destiny can be changed at an altar, my friends. In your life, the destiny of your family can be changed at an altar. The destiny of your future and your career and your life and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren can be changed at an altar. It can change the course of your life. And Isaac's generation was blessed because of those who had built those altars previously that had shown him the power of the altar. Isaac understood from Abraham that there was power when men and women would gather into the meeting place of God where God said, here I will meet with you. What was unique is that Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 begins to build his own altars. There was something unique about what how Isaac built his altars this new generation. He began to build an altar and in Isaiah or in Genesis 26 it says and he built an altar and his servants dug a well next to it. Isaac wasn't just concerned about building an altar and running off. Isaac realized that if some, God's going to do something in my life, I want to be there long enough for him to allow him to do it. And he dug a well next to me. And he said, you know, I can stay here for a long time if I've got water. You know, used to, we'd come to the altar, and there was times where we'd spend hours in the altar. Now I hate talking about used to, but the sad fact is, is that we don't see much of that anymore. Where people would come to the altar, and they would tarry before the Lord. That's a word that we've lost in our vernacular because tarrying before the Lord requires patience. It requires us waiting. Sometimes it requires stillness and quietness of soul. Tarrying before the Lord means that we don't get up until God has moved upon our life. And we wait on Him and we spend time in His presence. We dip from the well that's right next to the altar and we say, Lord, I'm going to stay here and let the blessings and the flow of the Holy Spirit just continue to flow over my life until I have the answer. Friends, sometimes we leave our prayer closets and our prayer altars much too soon. God hasn't finished His work and we're ready to get on about our day. And God says, well, what about me changing your destiny and your future and your family? We get up and we leave and we go about our business and God hasn't done what he has said he would do. And we blame God for it when God's saying, would you just wait on me? Isn't that what the scripture says? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Not the, they that come and spend a few moments and, and have a few token minutes with the Lord. They're the ones that's going to renew their strength. No, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting in the presence of God at the altar of the Lord where he meets with us. Isaac built, dug a well so that he could stay there longer. The altar is like a delivery room. I remember when we were waiting, when I was waiting, Shannon was in, the, in labor and delivery. We're waiting, I can't even remember which kid it was. We'll blame it on Seth. He's not here. I remember I was as nervous as a cat on a tin roof. I didn't know what to do. I was just kind of standing there, you know, pacing back and forth. We had a little uh, a doctor that was great. He, he, he let me come in the whole process. But, man, as Shannon got into that delivery, she got serious. And when she got serious, I got serious because what was unique, I was sitting there at the... I had her hand by the hand. She's there in labor. And I'm just kind of caressing her hand. Baby, you're doing great. You're, you're doing a wonderful job. And as I'm doing that, all of a sudden she'd say, yes, thank you. And my she would grab my hand. I thought she broke it five times while she was having I thought I was going to ask the doctor to put a cast on my hand before we had our kid. I'd say, baby, you're doing great. Jesus, help us. It was a delivery process. It took time. There was some tearing. There was some waiting. There was some moaning and groaning that took place in that delivery room. It was after that that the delivery gave birth to these miracles that we have, our kids. The altar is a place of delivery. Not just freedom from your from your sin and freedom, but it is a place of delivery. There is some groaning that has to take place. There is some waiting that has to take place. And friends, when you come to the altar, expect God to, t- to take, you, take His time in working with you. You are a faulted piece of clay, by the way. All of us are. And it takes time to make something pretty out of what we give Him. That's where the delivery happens. That's what the altar is. So Abraham and these saints of God built these altars. Isaac comes along and he builds an altar with a well. And then Isaac's generation begins to pass. And the sad story, if you read Genesis, is that the altars that Abraham built, and the altars of Isaac, became neglected. Unfortunately, more attention was paid to the wells that were dug than to the altars that were built. Now you keep that in mind because the Lord gave me revelation on that today. And along comes Jacob and his generation. And sadly, Jacob didn't know much about altars. His generation was much more interested in the wells than building altars. You see it in the latter part of Genesis. They redug all of Abraham's wells, but they never rebuilt Abraham's altars. This Jacob generation is much like our generation. They weren't interested in the altars, but they were very interested in the wells. You say, Well, Pastor, isn't that a good thing? When you dig a well, you are looking for an earthly solution to your life. But when you build an altar, you are looking for a heavenly solution in your life. There's a big difference. Let that sink in. We are that Jacob generation. We are those people who have dug a lot of wells. We've put wells in the place of our altars. We've removed the altars. And in its place, we have put worship bands. Earthly solutions. Come on, y'all following me. I'm telling the truth. We've put programs and discipleship things that were created from some type of uh, Christian literature source where if we follow this guideline, God will save the lost. We've created events and special dates. We've brought lights and log machines into the church. We've dug wells looking for earthly solutions. God, how can we reach our generation and we dig our wells? Instead of looking up, we are looking here on the earth. And we're trying to dig our own way out of the problem that this world finds itself in, and that is a generation that is lost without God. That has never seen the power of God displayed the way that He used to do it. We've dug a lot of wells. I don't know how many times since I've lived in this city, I've told myself, I've told my wife, I've told my staff, I said, I don't know the answer. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to build a church. I don't know how to grow a church. I don't know how to do it. I've dug a lot of wells, friends. And this morning in repentance I say many times I have looked to the the well for my answer, the source here, a new program, a new idea, a new hot song, when instead I needed to build an altar and begin to look up and find that my source and the source of this church doesn't come from some ingenuity and creativity, but it comes from the power of God that falls from heaven to us. The reason there's no revival in our day, the reason there are no signs and wonders in our day is because the altar of God is missing from the church. Genesis chapter 28. I want you to look at it with me. This is Jacob. So Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. Remember, he's going north now. He's going back to where his people were from. And when they reached, circle that in your Bible, a certain place, a certain place. When they reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Look at this closely. Taking one of the stones there in that certain place, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until you I have done what I have promised you. Seems like we just read that earlier. Look at verse 16. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. The grandson of Abraham, doing his best to follow God. His life from birth had been dysfunctional. His family was chaotic. And he lived his life trying to just stay one step ahead of all of his problems. And he's heading north, leaving Beersheba, fleeing for his life from his brother Esau. And he heads toward Haran, the, the ancestral home of his people, the home of Abraham place where his grandparents were from. And the Bible says that he stops at a certain place. Here's what's wonderful about this. That certain place happened to be the same place where two generations ago, his grandfather Abraham had first built an altar to the Lord in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. And he went back again in chapter 13 and built it again, a certain place where Abraham had consistently called on the name of the Lord God, the altar that Abraham had built. And my friend, after two generations, the Holy Spirit was still frequenting that place because of the altar that Abraham had built and consecrated so many generations ago. It was a powerful place where God met Abraham. And now it was nothing but a pile of rocks, the stone that Jacob used for his pillow was most likely one of the stones that was used from the altar of Abraham that he placed under his head. Jacob's generation slept on the presence of God, didn't even know what it was. Whew. but God was still in that place. And all through the Scriptures we see and understood the, understand the importance of an altar, of people who knew how to build an altar, and how to use the altar, how to frequent that place. And then we also see generations of people come along who neglect the altar and don't even know how to build one. And this morning I'm just asking God once again to give us a new commitment to the altar. heard many times that people are just upset not seeing the power of God like they've heard or seen in the past or all the stories of the Bible we see God's movement and God's power so so manifest so so obvious so out in the open we hear generations before us talk about that manifestation Of the power of God, let me tell you, my friend, it will come when this generation builds its own altars. If your experience with God costs you nothing, it will do nothing, and it's worth nothing. You see, teaching and preaching, it's not really very difficult. I can get up here and deliver any type of message that I want to and call it, put my stamp of, of preaching on it. But to speak the words of life to you doesn't come without the work of the altar. You can speak over your kids, and you can proclaim this, and you can proclaim that, but my friend, your words are as empty as a plastic balloon unless the power of the altar is behind them. It would be hard to receive the word that came from Sister Pamela this morning had I not known her life that's spent near the altar of God. Consistency. But we've traded the altar for many other things in the church today. And I'm just telling you, friends, they won't get it done The altar is the only thing that is going to get it done in our generation. So the question is, what are we going to do with it? Well, let me tell you a few things about the altar, and then I'm going to close. The altar is a place of divine access. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing. It's a place of divine access. The first dispute that's recorded in the Bible happened because of an altar. What happened? Cain murdered Abel. Why? Because we know for a fact Adam must have shared how his child to his children how to have access to the presence of God. He was dismissed from the garden, and you know the story. But there was only one way to approach the Lord: you had to come as and a sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, Cain's was not. Why? Because the blood of Abel's sacrifice granted him acceptance. And from, from the Old Testament, the very first altar that was built in the Bible, all the way through the New Testament, you see that Ephesians chapter 2 comes into play, where Jesus' blood, it's through the, it's through the blood of Jesus, that Ephesians 2.8 says, We have access to the Father through the Spirit. The altar is a place of divine access. It reminds us. Once again, of who is the one who opens the doors for us? It is Christ Jesus. And when we have that meeting place, we understand we don't come in our own pride. We don't come in our own spiritual man. Because nothing that we have is worth any more than the rags that that even what we wear on our body, Isaiah said. We come to him as just people who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that grants us access into God's presence and glory. The altar is a place of divine access. The altar is a place where covenants are created and maintained. You can't have a covenant or a promise without an altar. It's the altar of God that serves as the guarantee to every promise and every covenant. The reason the covenant of salvation works in our life is because of the blood that was t- that Jesus took and poured upon the altar. Hebrews 9, 12 says, It's not with blood of goats and calves, But with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus took His blood and upon the altar of heaven, He showed that the covenant of salvation was made and it was guaranteed so that all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. The altar is what marked and created and maintained the covenant in the Old Testament. I remember when I was just a boy, when I got saved. Let me just tell you something. I remember the place. I remember the day, the time. And I remember exactly how it happened. Because it happened at an altar. There was an altar experience Now, am I saying the only place you can get saved is at the front of a church on a wooden altar? Absolutely not. But here's what I am saying. You are going to have an altar experience before the covenant of salvation is going to take place in your life. Because you can weep a lot of crocodile tears and you can say, God, I just wish I hadn't done those things. Get me out of the jam. But it's the altar that confirms when the blood is applied to your life that you reason in your mind and you say, I commit my life to the Lordship of Christ and I accept His forgiveness of my sin. That is is what seals it. It was at the altar. An altar experience confirms the covenants and promises of God. You have to have an altar experience, my friend, to be saved. Not a repeat after me prayer that you can't even remember. I've asked people, I've said, you know what, when did you get saved? Well, Pastor, I can't really remember. I think I was at camp sometime. I don't really know. My friend, if you don't know when you had that altar experience, then I question that moment. I'm serious. You can't remember when God came and turned your life around. If it wasn't as important enough for you to remember that moment, then my friend, it might not have been real. I'm preaching pretty straight this morning, but that's the only way I know how to preach. We have to have an altar experience because it seals the covenant. It makes the covenant. It maintains the covenant and promises. And it's not just salvation, it's all of the other blessings and promises of God. The altar is also a place of sacrifice and cleansing. How many times have I seen people come up to the altar and leave their addictions there? I remember as a boy one time, it was a service, a powerful service. God just moved. And there were people in the in the congregation that night, Sunday night, that were living in sin, living their lives not, not according to God's word, trying to walk the fence. I want to live for the Lord, but I want to live in the world at the same time. They tried to walk that little narrow line, and I'll never forget it. Person after person walked up. One had a fifth of Jack Daniels. He walked, he went outside, he got it out of his car, and he brought it down, and he put it on the altar. Addictions begin to place down. I remember one guy, one time, he brought in a, a, a bag of marijuana. I said, My God, we're all going to get arrested. We're all going to jail. All these tra- This is back in the day where you didn't get by with a few ounces. I mean, it was just for real. He's a little baggie, and he throws it down. I was like, What is that? Pastor, he's going to deliver me of it. I was like, we better get delivered of that real quick. Setting it down at the altar. Because the altar is a place of cleansing. Where you leave your past behind. It's a place where you can say right there. Then, at that moment, on that particular day, I left my past behind. And with the grace of God, I walked free. That's an altar experience. Some of you are trying to live past your addictions and will yourself over certain things in your life. Friend, it won't happen unless you have an altar experience and you come to the altar of God and you meet with Him and you say, Lord, you take whatever's in my life and you clean me out so that I can be your servant and fill me up full of the Holy Ghost. Finally, the altar is a place of supernatural visitation. I love the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah's on the mountain. You know the story. Prophets of Baal are up there. First thing he does, after they get through with their little chanting and charades, the Bible says that he began to rebuild the altar, right? That's what he did. He began to rebuild the altar. And as he rebuilt the altar, he created... <laughs> the Bible says that he dug a trench all the way around that altar. And he filled it full of water. A lot of people are like, "Man, I, that's because he wanted to just prove to people how powerful God was. Well, maybe. Maybe. The thought occurred to me. If You built an altar right there in the middle. And you put big old ring around that thing. Filled it full of water. And you're 10,000 feet looking straight down on that. What do you see? You see a bullseye is what you see. Come on. He built the altar and he said, God, right here. Here we go. And sure enough, the fire of God fell because altar was the target of where the presence of God was going to fall. Friends, that's great because I know that when we have an altar experience, we're saying, God, right here, right now. This is what we need for the fire of God to fall on His people once again. Church, hear me. We need to rebuild the altar of God. We need to make a commitment and say, Lord, we're going to restore the place where we know Your fire will fall. Man, fire that brings revival comes because we give God a target. The Bible says that He's looking to and fro throughout the earth seeking who He can bless. Why don't we paint a big target on the top of this church by restoring the altar? You have to rebuild the altars privately. The family altar and the church altar. All of them. I close with this. Daniel, would you come? In 1949, a missionary by the name of Dr. Edward Miller, he spent years in Argentina, started a tent crusade in a little city called Lavelle. And for two weeks, he put that tent up. They sent out flyers. They sent all kinds of things around. And for two weeks, they played music, and no one came. No one. They thought that even kids, thinking that it was a circus, would might show up. No one showed up. And a quote from his, some of his journals said this, "...bitterly defeated, all defenses and excuses destroyed." God brought me to admit the total inadequacy of my abilities to succeed as a missionary. With that confession, in light of all that was happening, came the decision to quit playing the missionary game. Nothing was left but to leave the ministry, return to my own land, get a job, and admit that somehow I was mistaken the call of God and didn't belong in that profession. But then the Lord began to speak to him, and he gave him these two scriptures. He gave him the scripture in, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. It's familiar. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And another verse of scripture in Job, chapter 28, says, There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. And he felt the Lord directing him to lay down all of his missionary efforts and to try prevailing prayer. And so he accepted the challenge, this missionary that had given his life to Argentina. He accepted the challenge for a week of fasting and prayer. So he planned to go into a little upper room in the upstairs of the parsonage of his home and spend time in prayer with God quoting from his journal, he says, after seven days of prayer and fasting, there still was no answer. Doubts, questions, and fear marked the long passing hours. Where was God? The walls echoed back the barren question. Turmoil wrestled within. Was such a demand on God human impertinence? The days crept slowly by and still no answer, save until the Penupulate day that the Spirit of God draw near and question me as to what I was doing. And my answer was, I am fasting and praying for revival, God. Then there came a strange word from the Spirit, which was an empty stomach is not the coin of heaven, but rather the blood of Christ. After seven days, that week ended with what a relief. I had accepted the challenge and no fruit resulted from it. Therefore, I was now free to leave the mission field and retire to more fruitful work. But then, ahead loomed an apparently dead-end street. An ever-deepening dread of defeat threatened me. A defeat so final and abysmal that terrified me. There came this sudden realization of the devastation of the defeat that would produce in my life, and my faith in God would slowly began to evaporate. My heart would never again believe that God, the God of others, would ever become my God. The God of Elijah, the God of Peter, the God of many of God's men that I had known, would never become my God. And this terrifying realization became a strong motive to continue past seven days, for if I could, I dared not stop until obtaining at least some kind of answer from God. Seven weeks went by. And still I dared not abandon my search, for every day defeat seemed more horrible to, contempt, to contemplate. If this search ended without victory, it would take my very, the very God out of heaven, weeping, waiting, meditating, searching the word, walking, kneeling, standing again, being prostrate on the floor, and nothing but silence. No posture, no fasting, no tears, no cries could break through the silence. The invisible barrier that was so oppressingly close upon me. Days slowly passed, lengthening into weeks. During those weeks of prayer, a man and his unsaved son came by. They came by to check on him. And as they got up to leave, Dr. Miller asked that son who was unsaved if he was ready for eternity. He dodged the question a few times until finally, before they left, this young man was sobbing on the floor, broken before God in his presence. The two finally left, he says, and in the darkness of the hall with the the door scarcely closed, a gentle voice within said, You see, son, when I wish, I can bring souls to you. Now return and continue in prayer until I tell you the time to leave. After six more weeks, Dr. Miller said the Lord finally spoke to him. And he said this, now it's time to pour my spirit out upon the church. So I want you to prepare a prayer meeting. I want you to do it on Monday night. Go from 8 p.m. to midnight. And tell them if they won't stay the entire four hours, then not to come. Out of the haste of making that announcement in that little church In Argentina, three people showed up to that prayer meeting in that heaterless, cold church in the dead of winter. One young teenage girl, one backslidden former church leader, and his wife, who was so shy she never mumbled a word. He writes, not one of them, not one of the three had ever seen anyone filled with the Holy Spirit or have heard much about Him. The small church and many like it in Argentina at that time had never experienced any manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They did not know how to receive the Holy Spirit, nor what it would, what it would be like when He came. He spent some time the first night instructing them according to the Scriptures. And then all five of us, he said, knelt before the Lord in prayer. The total, absolute silence reigned supreme. Whether they slept or prayed, he said, I don't even know. He said, I led out in prayer, praise and song, but not one joined me. They merely just waited and watched in silence. And when the four hours had passed, I asked if anyone had received any impulse or direction from the Lord that would call for any cooperation on one's part. Had anyone received this unction to pray aloud or to praise the Lord or to sing a song, anything at all? everyone answered with a negative except for the young shy wife who admitted to a strange desire to walk to the table that was in the front of the auditorium, the center, and to hit upon it. Monday passed, Tuesday passed, Wednesday passed, and then Thursday night everything continued as on the previous evenings until 11 o'clock when I asked everyone to get up from their knees and be seated. I called the young wife by name and asked, Do you still feel the like hitting the table? In shame and reluctance, she confessed to the same strange desire, but she absolutely refused to get up and do it. So I asked everyone to sing a chorus, and we all marched around the table, and one by one gathered courage to hit and knock on the table as we just passed by. All that is except for the one whom God gave the order. Fifteen minutes passed with all of us singing a chorus and marching around the table and four of us hitting on it. Finally, the young wife that God had singled out for this simple act of courage reached out and banged on the table. When her hand hit the table, he said, immediately it was like a rushing wind swept through that room from one corner. To the opposite corner. In seconds, the retiring, timid servant, young girl, was on her feet, worshiping the Lord in great ecstasy. Her hands were raised in the air, and her face was transformed. She radiated the joy and the glory of the Lord as she spoke in an unknown language. The backslidden, rebellious husband, who had consistently resisted the call of God over his life, fell under the table and began to worship the Lord in another tongue as the Spirit gave utterance. His young, reluctant wife, seeing what was taking place with the others, cried out in a loud voice, all timidity gone, I too, Lord, please don't pass me by. She feared that the Spirit would not bless her, however, In just moments, the river of the Holy Spirit flowed upon her and immersed her in the glory of His presence, and she broke forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. We didn't realize at the time, but that day was the beginning of the coming of the Holy Spirit, not only to us, but upon the whole of Argentina. It began as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would in time reach out into the farthest corners of that great country. An act of simple obedience had been the last key to that, that opened the door. That day, God sent in motion the forces to change a vast, idolatrous, unbelieving country to make it of Christ, a Christian nation. The move of God for which so many had prayed had come. Faith had triumphed. All the prayers, the years of tears and longings and countless hours of wrestling with the enemy had at last prevailed, and faith changed into sight and many had longed that many had longed and prayed for that had yet never seen. Others laid down their lives in faith, not having received the promise, nevertheless he came just as he had promised. That Argentine revival went on in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to reach millions and millions of people for Jesus Christ. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was so strong, churches flooded that place. With God's glory. We have a picture of what it looks like before church at the, at, in an Argentinian church. This is what they do, friends. They don't, the pastor doesn't say, hey, it's time to make an altar. We're about to get started in church. When they come to church, this is what it looks like before they get started. This isn't an altar call. And this is a sister church of ours in Argentina where people understand the power of the altar. They know. That's where what brings the target of God's power. So here's my question. Who will help me? Daniel, go ahead. Who will help me put the altars back? Who'll help me? Who'll help me? We'll go get them.
0: Who'll help me? Men
1: and women We have to put the altars back. Who's going to help me? Come on, somebody. Who's going to welcome the altars back into this auditorium? Who's going to welcome? Who's going to march the altars back into this place? Come on, friends. Who's going to welcome the altars? Who's going to do it? Well, come on. Come welcome them. Come welcome. Yes.
0: (laughs) I wish you could see this sight. I wish you could see this sight. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh God. Come on, friends. Now let's make this place a sacred time. God's holy. Hallelujah. 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 Put it back the altars back <laughs> oh God oh God <laughs> oh God we call upon you Lord restore the altar <laughs> restore the altar to the church oh God. fire in our hearts oh lord lord jesus let us not get lord so caught up with the wells of man's ideas but god let us have the experience of the altar where the fire comes from above lord it's nothing we make nothing we engineer oh god nothing we imagine, it comes from you, oh God. Let revival come, Lord. Let revival come. Oh, hallelujah. 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 Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at
1: 1030.